I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive and you're present with us here by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to make a connection here between Easter and April Fool's Day. Um, The last time this happened was 1956. And the next time it's going to happen again is 2029. So, um, so I want to take the opportunity to talk about why it's not foolish to believe that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> you know, I was doing some research on April Fool's Day and looking at some pranks that people have um, perpetrated through the years. My, my favorite big hoax was what happened in 1957 on the BBC. They ran this program on a show called Panorama in which they highlighted the farmers in Switzerland who had a bumper crop that year of spaghetti, spaghetti trees. And um, there were like 250 people who called in to the BBC switchboard wanting to know, where can I get one of these spaghetti trees? Where can I go to see this harvest? And I was telling my in-laws about this and and my mother-in-law um, said that she remembers her aunt, Grace, who fell for this hoax and never lived it down in her family. They would always bring it up. So um, now that's Josie's family. That's that side of the family. Just want to be clear that happened there. You know, some people would, would put the resurrection of Jesus in that, in that same category today of believing something fantastical like spaghetti trees. I I want to talk to you about why it's not foolish. And uh, as I've preached over the years on Easter, I've given historical arguments for the resurrection, why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus is alive, the fact of the empty tomb, the fact that if Jesus' enemies, and we know Jesus' enemies wanted to stop people from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they could have produced the body, and right then and there, the whole thing would have been squelched. But I, I want to appeal to something different here. Uh, I want to appeal to something that we all carry around with us, I think, all the time, inside of us, inside of our hearts, inside of our minds, and that is deep longings and deep questions. Um, underneath these, these questions that I think we all have, are longings that God put in our heart that He designed so that it would point us to Him as the answer. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. For example, he says, think of a baby. A baby gets hungry. Well, there is food to satisfy the baby's hunger. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. So the argument that Lewis is making is if we have longings that this world cannot satisfy, it's reasonable to conclude that God, who is our creator, designed us this way so that we will have satisfaction in him and what only he can give so that we will look to him for the answer. So I want to just look at some of our persistent questions, our deepest longings to see how God answers these questions in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, these are things that we carry around with us all the time. We might suppress these questions. We might try to ignore them. 
We might divert our attention away from them, but they're there. The, exa- the, the, the fundamental question, of course, is the existence of God. Does God exist? And if God exists, what is God like? What is his nature? Now, the first disciples of Jesus, of course, did not have a, a problem with question number one, the existence of God. As devout Jews, they believed in the existence of God. The question for them was the nature of God. In particular, is, is Jesus revealing God? Is Jesus God's Messiah? Is Jesus God's Son? That was the question that was raised by Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and miracles. Well, after the, resur- after the crucifixion, rather, the disciples said no. He couldn't have been. He could not have been God's Messiah. Um, God's Messiah would not have died in such a terrible, ignoble, ignoble death. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. They had hoped that God really, it was God that was really working in him. But it turns out, they said, we were wrong. And he was wrong because of his death on the cross. Their faith was shattered. And you see that in the accounts of the Easter story. When Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, we read about it in John 20, she is not expecting to find the tomb empty. Her faith is shattered. She's going to grieve a friend. She's not expecting to see the tomb empty, much less encounter the risen Christ. And when she gets there and the tomb's empty, her explanation, it's a rational explanation, somebody's taken his body. They did not understand, John tells us, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. But when they encountered the risen Christ, it was a revelation, it was a revolution. It changed everything because they understood only God could do this. Only God could raise Jesus from the dead. And it wasn't a resuscitation, wasn't divine shock paddles so much, raising Jesus to the same life he had. It wasn't resuscitation, it was resurrection to a new and unending life. And only God can do that. And so it took them a while to put all the pieces together, but, but they believed that God was indeed at work in Jesus in a unique way, and that Jesus really was the Messiah, the Son of God. I I know that there's a very powerful idea in our time, in our culture, and it's this, that in the name of science, we cannot possibly believe this story. We might as well believe the story about the spaghetti coming from trees, okay? Because, uh, you know... This, this, the scientific method rules out the possibility of resurrection. So if you want to believe it and that makes you feel better, then go ahead. But sophisticated scientific people can't possibly believe something like this. And that's a very powerful current in our culture today. I want to quote something from Ian Hutchinson. He's a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. He's a Christian. He gave a talk last year about why him? How, why he, as a, as a Christian scientist, can believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And he says this. He says, science cannot and does not disprove the resurrection. Why? He says, because science describes the normal reproducible workings of nature. The normal reproducing working, workings of nature. Reproducible workings of nature. But miracles are, by definition, non-reproducible. They're abnormal. 
So they can't be proved or disproven by the scientific method. And, and then he went on and he said, this widespread view that events contrary to the laws of science can't happen, he said, that is not science. This is an MIT professor saying this. He says, that's a philosophy. That's a philosophical presupposition. Science, he said, in conclusion, is not our only means for assessing truth. It's a powerful means of assessing truth. All truth is God's truth, but it's not the only means. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us this truth to a fundamental question, a fundamental longing. Does God exist? If so, what kind of God? And the resurrection said, yes, there is a God, a living God who has intervened and does intervene in this world. And Jesus is his son. He's the Messiah, our Savior. Here's another question that the resurrection answers. Again, something that I think we carry around with us all the time. Sometimes we suppress it. Sometimes we ignore it, but it bubbles up to the surface, especially when we've done something wrong and we know we've done something wrong. And the question is, what can I do with my guilt? What can I do with my shame? And and this longing to be made whole, this longing to be made clean. Now, in some ways, our culture has tried to eliminate the idea of guilt as an objective reality. And so we... We take the concept of guilt and we say, the reason I feel guilty is because of my parents and the way they raised me. Or the reason I feel guilty is because of the denomination that I was raised in, my religious tradition. And then we reduce the feeling of guilt to nothing more than just a feeling. There's no objective thing behind it. It's just subjective feeling because of the way I was, I was raised. And it's true that you know, the way we were raised, our parents and maybe our religious traditions can twist the feelings of guilt, and uh, in unhealthy ways. But I don't think it ever goes away. We can ever get rid of the feelings of guilt because I think God has hardwired us to feel guilt because there is such a thing as a conscience and a moral law. I mean, um, we've seen this in our little one, our two-year-old Sam. And those of you who've raised kids, you know what I'm talking about. At a very early age, they start to understand the concept of feeling guilty. And uh, Sam has also discovered the word stupid. So he likes to, to call his siblings. If they do something he doesn't like or he, they don't give him what he wants, he, he says, you're stupid. And then sometimes he feels guilty about it. Not always, but sometimes he does feel guilty. And when he feels guilty, his little head goes down. When he's really feeling guilty, his head goes, I've seen his head go all the way to the ground and go underneath the table because he knows he's been bad. Who taught him that? We didn't teach him that. There's something within, a sense of guilt. Tim Keller says, our conscience is like a radio receiver picking up transmission from God's seat of justice. The reason why, as Christians, we would say the reason why we feel guilty is that we are guilty. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not keep the golden rule. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. What do we do with this guilt? The good news is that God's provided a way for us to be forgiven, to be declared not guilty by him. And that happens at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says this is one of the things of first importance. This is 101 Christianity. First importance 
Christ died, why? For our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And later in that same chapter, he'll go on and he'll say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Shut down the church. Close the doors. Your faith is futile if Christ has not been raised. And you are still dead in your sins. You're still in your sins, he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So here's the point. At the resurrection, God vindicates the death of Jesus. God confirms that the death of Jesus really was what Jesus said it was going to be. Jesus came into this world and he said, I have come to give my life away as a ransom for many, as a payment. Jesus says at the Last Supper, and we say it every Sunday, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And if Jesus had not been raised, then we could wipe all that away and say that he was mistaken. You know, thousands of people were crucified under the Roman rulers. Thousands of people. There's only one name that we remember, and that is Jesus Christ. Because of who he said he was and the fact that God raised him from the dead, it vindicates that his death really is the sacrifice for sins. It confirms what Jesus said was true. And so because of the resurrection, brothers and sisters, when we come, and we come with guilt and shame, We can know that as we repent of our sins, as we put our faith in Christ, we can be cleansed, we can be made whole as we trust in the sacrifice that he made for us at Calvary. His grace is greater than our guilt. His grace is greater than our sin. And and then finally, the resurrection answers this question, and I had a difficult time phrasing this question, so I just put it this way. The question I think this is a question that, especially as we get older, we ask ourselves more and more. Is there something more? There's there's this longing. There's got to be something more than just this world and what this world can give us. Is there something more? This longing for something more than what the world has to offer, more than just understanding the world is just nature and matter, and that's all there is, and that's all there ever is going to be. Is there something more? I heard the story of a woman named Jennifer Fulweiler. Jennifer Fulweiler was raised as an atheist, and she never believed in God, and her dad read her Carl Sagan at night. That was her bedtime reading. <laughs> and that's how she was raised. And then she gave, uh, she gave birth to her first child, and that started the crack in the foundation of her worldview. When she gave birth to her first child, who was a son, and she said, according to my worldview, this baby is nothing more than a random collection of molecules and chemicals. And she's looking at her newborn baby, and she said, now, if that is true, then the love that I feel for this child is nothing more than chemical reactions. And she said, at the deepest place in her being, she said, that just can't be true. That's just not true. I know it's not true. And that put her on a search, a spiritual search, and eventually she came to the Christian faith. She eventually came to believe in Jesus Christ as she investigated the truth of of Christ and the claims of the truth of Christ and the resurrection. But the resurrection of Jesus answers this question, this longing. There's got to be something more. There must be something more beyond what the world has to offer. Think about the longing for ultimate justice. We see it all the time in our world. People get away with stuff all the time. People get away with cheating and criminal activity all the time. 
And there's something that rises up within us and say, God, there's got to be justice. Some of the recent acts of violence in our country, like, like the shootings and the mass murders, even when the people who do these things, the perpetrators are caught, even when they're prosecuted and punished, does it really make up for all the suffering they've caused? Are the scales ultimately balanced? We, we long for it. We ought to do the best that we can, but there is no perfect justice in this world. But in our reading from Acts, the Apostle Peter says this, Acts 10.42, that the resurrection of Jesus establishes that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And that in the resurrection of Jesus, God demonstrated that he triumphs over evil and injustice. There's never been any more evil or unjust act than the crucifixion of Jesus, and God shows that he's victor over that. And that's just a preview, the apostles are saying in their preaching, it's a preview of when Christ comes as judge of the world. There is going to be ultimate justice. This desire for more, this longing for something beyond what the world has to offer. And, and that longing is never more stronger than when we face our great enemy, which is death, this longing for something more. Now, when we are at the, the graveside of, of somebody who we love, when we are on our sickbed, nothing in this world can give us hope, but the risen Christ can. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, and we sang it, O death, where is your victory? In light of the resurrection. O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the turning point in this story with, with Mary Magdalene in John 20, the turning point, it comes. She's confused. She's disbelieving. She's grasping for explanations. The turning point comes when Jesus personally addresses her and calls her by name, Mary. And then she knows it's, it's her Lord. She knows he's alive. I believe in these questions that we carry around with us, God is personally addressing each and every one of us. God is calling us to himself. God is saying, put your hope in me. The question, does God exist? What is God like? What can I do with my guilt, my shame, my failures? There's got to be something more in this life. There's a reason we have these questions. Because God's put them there. And in these questions, God's addressing us. And he's calling us to put our trust in the risen Lord. It's not foolish to listen to these questions. It's foolish to suppress them. It's not foolish to believe that God is the answer. He's provided reasons and evidence. So let's not suppress the questions. Let's not ignore them. Let's let these questions and longings drive us to faith, ever-increasing faith in the risen Lord, who is the answer. He is the answer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we do ask by your Holy Spirit that you will address each and every one of us personally just as if you were speaking our name.
we thank you that you, that you have done that in, in our lives and that you continue to do that and you continue to remind us that you are the ultimate satisfaction for the longings that we have. I pray for anyone here who struggles to to trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you will continue to call them to yourself and reveal yourself to them. I pray, God, for open minds and soft hearts. I pray for those of us who have been on the way for some time now who maybe are cold and complacent that you, risen Christ, will stir up faith and hope and love in a new and fresh way this season. I pray for those who maybe are in a time of doubt and despair in their life. Holy Spirit, that you will come and you will draw near to them. And Lord Christ, that you will draw near to them, that you know that you're that they might know that you're with them. I pray for people who might be feeling guilty that they would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and trust in the sacrifice, O God, that you've provided. We thank you, God, for what you've done. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're alive. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.